Lord, you are the high king of heaven. You are the one who has won the victory. You are the one who has secured your people as a possession to yourself. May we think well today on what that looks like. May we think uh, biblically, as you've said, of what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's see. So, you know when you have a brilliant plan and... Uh, Nope, got to reconnect it, sorry. So you know when you have a brilliant plan and you intend for something to go a particular way and you, in your infinite wisdom, decide after doing it that you may not have done it the right way the first time? That's how I feel about the, uh, the message today. I had a plan. You'll notice in the bulletin, uh, just like last week, there's a fill in the blank. So last week we talked about um, what is the church. And so we, we got to uh, explore that a little bit. Um, oh, there we go. That's what I was trying to do, except not really. Sorry, give me a second. Um, so uh, we, we came, I, I, I define the church as uh, the church is a people founded upon the gospel. And the reason that that's important was because we recognized that the church is, first of all, a people, not a place. It's a, gr it's a group of people, not a building. And then we also established that it was founded by Christ, that Christ is, in fact, the, uh, the, the founder and, and perfecter of his church, and then also that it's founded upon the gospel. And in our, in our Thursday group, we had the opportunity to uh, explore that a little further. Uh, we got to talk about how once the gospel is abandoned, a church no longer really remains a church. And I'm having massive technical difficulties, so I, I really apologize, but I'm going to sit here struggling for a minute, or I'll just turn that off, one of the two. Um, so last week, again, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fill in the blank where the church is a people founded upon the gospel, and I waited until the very end to tell you what the fill-in was, and I walked you through it. That's what I had planned to do this week, and I think I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I intended, and actually so much, so, so much differently that I'm about to just turn this off and give up. <laughs> so, um, the, when, when it comes to the gospel, the found, the, is, it's the foundation, the center of a church's activity. The intent of everything that the church does is ultimately centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. And the churches, whether Corinth, Galatia, Colossae, uh, Philippi didn't really have any trouble. They were perfect. That's not, that's not true. But, uh, but all the different churches had their issues and Paul called him out each time, saying, you're abandoning the gospel. And it was no more clear than, uh, than the church uh, in Galatia, where in Galatians 1, 6, 9, he writes this. So this is Paul, stoic, encouraging, kind Paul. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So encouraging, huh? Full of encouragement. But Paul in those sentences is clear that the foundation of a church, or what the foundation should be. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that the matter of first importance was, in fact, the gospel. I made Jack say it a bunch in the, the, the Thursday group, so I'm going to point to him on, uh, out of habit. Uh, <laughs> so so the, fa- the center of everything a church does, or the church does, is the gospel. So, moving to this week's question. Last week was what is the church, right? The grand church. And this week, we're going to start answering the question, what is a church? And the distinction being, the church is a pretty big group, but a church is a local community of Christians. Uh, Yep. Yep. Garner, I'm going to turn this off. Does it make me press it again? No. Now it won't even let me turn it off. Oh, man, it's mean to me. It is rebelling. It's the tech uprising. Um, There we go. All right. Remind me to turn that back on at the end. So our question for today, what is a church? And really what that question is, is how do we pattern a church after the gospel? What's, what's the focus? What's the aim? Where, where, where does a church go? And today we're going to continue the pattern we started last week of having a more overhead view of the topic. Uh, we're going to be kind of flying in a plane here, and there's going to be some spots where we land and we kind of observe the scenery, but it's, it's not going to be for long. So, so expect to roll through your Bibles uh, a lot. <laughs> so... Um, Ben, I really don't expect to answer the question today. My initial thought was that we would explore this question in two weeks, and it might turn into three. Um, I thought that today was going to be the hinge that determines how long this this series is going to be, but but honestly, it's going to be next week, the more I I play with the outlines. So um, let's start our overhead view, all right? We're going to take off. We're going to fly in this jet. We're flying. We're at cruising altitude. Um, In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created the universe and everything in it. There were three primary protagonists in the beginning. It was God, Adam, and Eve. Of course, we can say that there's, there's more characters in the story, but that's really who we start with. We start with animals, which are not really a character. We start with, uh, we, we start with plants, which really also are not a character. Mountains, oceans, not a character. So our three beginning characters, again, are God, then Adam, then Eve. Everything goes swimmingly. Everything's great. And not only is everything great, but in the garden, God walked. He walked in the garden, physically moved about. And then comes the antagonist, the bad guy, who's antagonizing the protagonist. It's Satan. He comes in as a serpent. Genesis 3 comes in as a serpent and and antagonizes Eve. And Eve decides to sin by eating the one thing. God said, hey, I created this thing. It's beautiful. Don't eat it. 
It's like, it's like when you have that really good painting in your house and you tell your kids, don't knock that one off. That one's expensive. What do they do? They use it as a basketball hoop. So, so, the, uh, so, so there's this one tree with fruit and the, they eat of it. And now the protagonists, Adam and Eve, become the antagonists. Because the whole story of the Bible is actually about God and what he's doing. God is the one protagonist throughout the whole of Scripture. Humanity kind of ruins it. So, God, what I want you to remember is that God walked in the garden. When everything was, was, was perfect and there was no sin in this world, he physically walked in the garden. He physically walked in the earth. But then, after he throws Adam and Eve out of the garden, he doesn't physically walk the earth. He becomes invisible instead of being visible. So, what happens then? Stuff. So then, jumping to Genesis 12, and I promise I'm not going to do the whole Bible, but you jump to Genesis 12, and after a ton of events, and God showing judgment, and, and still preserving his creation, you have the call of this guy named Abram. And uh, it, it, God chooses Abram. Why does, he chose, why does he choose him? What purpose? He says in verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in that, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He chose Abram for the one purpose of blessing the world. And we can actually then zoom through Scripture and realize that the reason he chose Abram was solely to bring Jesus into the world. That was, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promises, or promise in Genesis 12, 3. But God preserves. He makes a promise to Abram. He says, uh, your descendants will outnumber the sand and the seashore, the stars and the sky. And that eventually happens... It happens through Jacob, which is not Abram, who becomes Abraham, is not Abraham's son, but instead a couple, a generation down. Jacob's name becomes Israel after God preserves his covenant faithfulness, his promise to Abraham. He, he, he continues it through Israel, which then becomes the 12 tribes, which then becomes uh, a people in captivity, then that becomes a people that, that, that uh, become a nation. And then that nation falls apart, and it, it just goes on from there. But why did God preserve his promise? Why did God even make this promise to Abram, to Abraham? Well, it's because Jacob was his portion. Remember Deuteronomy 32.9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. God himself took on this people group, this, this small, insignificant people group. Honestly, kind of worthless in the grand scheme of things. If you were to read the rest of Genesis, you find Genesis 12 is really the first introduction of Abram. There's no real reason to choose Abram. If I were God and I wanted to choose a people, I'd probably choose a mighty nation, uh, one that might serve me honorably. But that's not what God does. Instead, he goes through this kind of strange lineage and chooses Abraham. 
And he does it actually to be a visible display of his providing to the rest of the world. That's actually the reason Israel was even chosen in the first place, was so that they could be a display of God. So your first fill-in is actually the word display. Uh, I won't, don't fill in the, the rest yet, but, but what you see throughout the rest of the narrative of Scripture is that every, every action, every good God-glorifying action of this people is, is actually ascribed to God. Whether it's at the Red Sea when the, when the Egyptian forces were destroyed by God or whether it's Joseph conquering the promised land, or whether it's David and Goliath, uh, whether it's, it's Nehemiah rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, or even Ezra bringing the people back, ultimately, every single time, God's people say, God did this. It wasn't us, it was God that did this. And so God's people meant to, they, they were supposed to display who he was. Even the Levitical laws existed for the purpose of God's people showing how holy and amazing God is. That was the one thing that they were to do. And you know what? Honestly, they never did it. Not for long. They did it for little bits of time. But God's people were very, very seldom faithful. <laughs> and really, ultimately, it showed that God was faithful. In the midst of their unfaithfulness, God stood faithful to his promises. Why? Because his promises are sure, but his people are fickle. But then, the story changed. When you come to the New Testament, no longer is God invisible, suddenly bursting out of, out of darkness and promises and 400 years of no words from God you have Jesus being born. No longer is it just God's people who are visible representing God, but now you have God himself, the God-man incarnate, fully God and full, or fully divine and fully man, somehow coexisting in this one person, Jesus Christ, who is born and then walks the earth and then teaches. God is no longer invisible. Because Jesus is visible. But uh, we all know how that ended. God comes back, and then God gets butchered on a cross. He gets nailed to an object much like this, much taller, much bigger, with giant nails like railroad spikes being stabbed through, through portions of his wrist. There's a little V joint and bone right here. So the Romans would drive the stake through here, uh, suspending the person on the cross where the person doesn't actually die of blood loss, but they die of asphyxiation because they can't breathe. Because the, the way that they're stretched out compresses the lungs and there's, the heart can't pump because it's, it's pressing on the veins right here and so it can't pump enough blood and the person eventually just, just dies because they can't breathe anymore. God dies. God dies in an awful, horrible way. Here was God visible. Man breaks the story, becomes the antagonist, 
And then, and then he's invisible. But he graciously provides this people who can show how wonderful God is, but they, they aren't good at it. And then God changes the story again by, by coming into the world. And then man breaks the story again. What could be a happy ending or sounds like it's the beginning of a happy ending ends terribly. But it's not terrible. Actually, it's so not terrible that God himself intended for that to happen. <laughs> Romans 5.8, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. God had the plan, and then not only did Jesus die, but he also raised from the dead, ascending again to heaven, becoming yet again invisible, though. So we can't see God's physical presence. I can't, uh, I can't go get my car keys and go see Jesus today, right? I can't drive up the mountain and all of a sudden Jesus is transfigured and tells me, tell, tells me which, uh, which, which next book to read or, 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 or how, to, how to go about daily life or whether or not I should, uh, I, I, I should invest in that robot vacuum. Uh, <laughs> so that's now going to become a joke. Um, but I can't do that anymore. God is invisible yet again, but with his ascension, he brings his Holy Spirit, right? Because like we said last week, Acts 1, 6 through 11, Jesus abandons his people, but he doesn't. Acts, uh, Acts 1, 8 makes that clear, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. So if you turn to Acts 2, Verses 1 through 4, I'm just going to read the verses. When the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, Pentecost was, a, was, a, was a, uh, an Israeli feast, okay? It's just a different name for a particular feast. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, the apostles, all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, meaning other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why did that happen? Well, think about Acts 1.8 again. You'll receive power. Why? So you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's not invisible. Not anymore. <laughs> Instead, he has his people again. Except his people aren't just driven by, by, by legal requirements and, and a way of living. Instead, they're driven by his Holy Spirit to go be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, your first word is display. Your first little fill-in. A church is a display. We are supposed to be the body of Christ, as Scripture puts it in Ephesians 4.12 and other places. We display God and act as his physical representatives on earth. His ambassadors, so says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. That's, that's our job as Christians, is to be the physical representation, not manifestation. Don't go down that road. Or road, but, but the physical representatives of, of Christ himself. That's the goal of the Christian. 
So you've got the rest of the fill-ins, right? So it says a church is a display, that's what you should fill in there, of blank blank. And the two, the two other blanks are God's glory. I'm going to give you those now. This is where I'm totally changing what I did. A church is a display of God's glory. So why is a church a display specifically of God's glory? If we're to be God's representatives, his ambassadors to this world, shouldn't it say that we're the, uh, a church is a display of God? Yes and no. The church is supposed to reflect something a little different. Jesus himself is actually the, the one physical representative of God. We see that in Colossians 1.15 right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image. We bear the image of God, but we are not the image of God. Does that make sense? Uh, if, 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 somebody, if somebody murders somebody, it's not as if they've killed God, but they've killed somebody that is bearing the image of God, and that's why it's a heinous crime. So in terms of a local church, a local church is not supposed to be a display of God himself. We are representatives of him. Um, also, just, just, to, just to advance it, um, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. We read this several weeks ago now. But, uh, but, but Matthew 5, 13 to 16 is, is, is a clever representation of what a Christian is supposed to be. But it's clever because the you in these verses is plural possessive. So this will ring a bell. If I start reading this, I'm sure you'll remember this or be able to sing it with me, uh, read it with me, but sing it because why not? Uh, you are the salt of the earth, you being plural possessive. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that's common. We're commonly understood. We're just supposed to be salt and light, right? We, a local church, we're meant to preserve. We're supposed to be salty. And we're supposed to illumine. We're supposed to be light. And since, we're, since, since you think of a light as visible, we're supposed to be a display, a display of God's glory. Why do I say that? Well, let's keep going. I'm gonna, like I said, we're, 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 we're flying a plane here. We're just landing to observe the territory quickly. I'm not, I'm not diving too deep into any, any one thing. But, but God gives goals to his churches. He gives goals and commandments to his churches. Uh, one such goal and commandment, or one such commandment is John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Right, isn't it? Right. Um, our love for one another will result in all people knowing that we're Jesus' disciples. 
So we're called to care for one another, to, to love one another, to, to, to make sure that we're all okay. Which is actually precisely why infighting and bickering and power struggles in a church and lack of trust uh, lead to death and decay in a, in, a, in a local church. Why? Because, honestly, if love has been lost, why would anybody want to come and worship? Much less us, right? Uh, it pushes out the people that truly want to love because that bickering turns into power struggles, which turns into disunity and division. So Jesus' command to the church is love one another so that the people outside see this amazing community and they, they, they want to know what it's about too. Another, another command or goal that, uh, that God gives the church is, is from Paul in Ephesians 3.10-11. Uh, he, says, uh, he, he says that the purpose of the gospel... Uh, this is summarizing 3, 3, 7 through uh, 10. But the purpose of the gospel is, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does that mean? Well, again, the church is supposed to display the manifold wisdom of God. You know what manifold means? Do you know what a manifold is? It's a thing that has many folds. That's what manifold means. It means many folds. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the church is supposed to display the manifold wisdom of God, the many-folded wisdom of God that has been realized in Christ Jesus. We're also supposed to be a corporate dwelling for God's Spirit, are we not? Notice I said corporate dwelling. In the Old Testament, uh, specifically in the Temple of Solomon, God's Spirit dwelt in a building, the Solomonic Temple, the Solomon's Temple, right? God's glory comes down as a really thick, dark cloud dwells in the temple, but it ends up departing the temple, leaving it. Um, but now, come New Testament time, come Acts 2, we find that the believer is the temple. And actually, again, this is very clever wording, but 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, I, I'm sure every one of you has heard this verse at some point. Uh, essentially, it's usually used to, to say, don't eat junk food. Why? Because you're God's temple. But that's not what that means. That's not what 3, 16 to 17 means. Uh, Paul writes this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's not about junk food. It's, Oreos are not sin based on 1 Corinthians 3.16-17. Oreos are not sin ever. Anyway. <laughs> um, but but the, the, what, what Paul is saying there, he says in a really brilliant fashion, he's saying uh, that... That, that the, the first you, right, is actually the gathered group, and the second you is you individually. Catch that again. He means two different yous. One, he means the southern y'all. <laughs> the other one, he means you individually. So he, again, says, do you not know that you, so do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? Now I sound, should, 
do NASCAR, or God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, individually, are that temple. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome. The, the gathered local body of Christ is God's temple. So fight for unity, fight to be together because you are God's temple, but if anyone comes in and destroys God's temple, that, that group, then they will be destroyed. Why? Because each individual Christian is God's temple, and God does not war against himself, and therefore we unite to the common goal of glorifying him. So, and actually, what, what's, what's great about that verse, too, is that later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul insists that the church is a body. That's a metaphor we've heard. The, the, the church is meant to be Christ's body. And in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Y'all are the body of Christ, but individually you're members of it. I... Love that. So, both together and singularly, we are the body of Christ. So what does that have to do with, with, with being a display of God's glory? That's, that's going back to the original question, right? A church, a local church, is a display of God's glory. So what, then, are we to display? How do we display God's glory? We know that Jesus, when he ascended, or Jesus in his last, last moments with the apostles, he gave... Uh, he, he gave the torch of the gospel to his apostles and said, go, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Um, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the promise of the Spirit. So the church is not abandoned. Acts 1 is not the abandonment of Jesus from his church. Uh, the church doesn't also act on its own, but it submits to Christ. The church is, 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 is the, the, a church, I keep saying the church, a church submits to Christ. It, it looks to the agency and the work of the Holy Spirit and everything it does. It, uh, it, the, the commands and purposes of God's people are meant to point to God and that submission to Christ. Everything a Christian does is in submission to Jesus. And in so doing, it glorifies Jesus. What I want to propose again is that, is that the church, a church is meant to display God's glory. And do you know what glory is? Can you define glory? Uh, my, my kids watch a, watch a, a show called Troll Hunters. Uh, and in it, there's, there's a character that uh, is only for one episode, but he just keeps screaming, glory, in the middle of battle, right? So you think the word glory, you might think in terms of war, where the soldier is, is getting glory for all, all, all the cool things he does. You might think about glory maybe as an artist that paints something, something wonderful. You might think of glory in terms of recognition of some sort. That's exactly what it is. How does a church glorify God? It gives God recognition in all things, in everything it does. It shows the beauty of God. It shows that a, a local church is supposed to show the beauty of God. How? Through lives lived out in the gospel. Through lives lived, lived out in response to who God is. 
Can we, can we agree that the personal commands of Scripture of being loving and kind and merciful and, 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 and compassionate, they, they are personal commands to you as Christians, but they're also corporate commands that the Christians together are supposed to do this. A Christian on his own might be kind, compassionate, loving, and all that, but when he gathers with the church is all of a sudden angry and wants to change the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, it's, it's hard to do the community Christian life. Why? Because we like our individuality. We like to serve God alone, but God's call is corporate. God's call is to be together. God's command is to be together. A local church is meant to have a beauty about it. And I'm not just talking an aesthetic. Like, really, aesthetics, the, the, the physical beauty, right? Eh, important, but probably third, fourth tier down, right? Um, a church is supposed to meant is meant to have a beautiful corporate heart. A local church and its members are meant to be holy, for God is holy. Kind because God is kind. Forgiving because God is forgiving. Merciful because God is merciful. A nation reflects its ruler. Doesn't it? Doesn't the nation reflect whoever's ruling over it? And a church is supposed to reflect her Savior. It's supposed to display God's loving kindness, His mercy. It, a, a church is meant to value truth. Why? Because God is truth. It's supposed to teach what accords to sound doctrine. I, you know, I graciously read Titus in my, in, in my Bible reading plan recently, and I, and I was just absolutely impressed with how, how Paul is trying to say that, that doctrine is, is application. Truly, doctrine is, is application. Just knowing all the theories and, 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 and everything for maybe a theology is worthless. It doesn't teach what accords with sound doctrine. Instead, Paul gives these list of things that the Christians within a church are supposed to be doing. So this is what he says. Uh, and he says these to different genders, but I'm going to apply them to everyone. Uh, a church is supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine, having its members be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, perseverance. The people are supposed to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or gossips, or slaves to drunkenness. Its members are supposed to be pure, kind, and submissive to Christ, because Christ is submissive to the Father. Let's, let's turn those around. Let's think about them in light of who God is. Let's think about them in terms of how God has come down to us in the gospel. Is Jesus sober-minded? Yes. Is Jesus dignified? Yes. Is he sound in faith and in love and steadfastness? Yeah, so much so that he went to the cross. Is he reverent in behavior? Yeah, to the proper things. Was he a slanderer or a gossip? No. Was he a slave to drunkenness? Probably not, but he got a lot of people sloshed at a wedding at Cana. Oh, I'm sorry, we're Baptists. Uh, the grape juice. He gave them, he gave them grape juice. Uh, <laughs> so, 
was Jesus pure? Yes. Was he kind? Oh, absolutely. Was he submissive to his father? Yeah. We're supposed to be a model of good works, showing integrity and sound speech, keeping our words uncondemnable by outsiders. Friends, is that what we're doing? Because if we're doing that, then we are displaying God's glory. If somebody could walk in here, if somebody could come in and be, let's, let's say they're the crazy homeless person, like that all of our characters in our minds fit together, right? Just totally whacked out and screaming. Would my, would my goal be to shove him out the doors because he's being distracting? Or would my goal to be, be to maybe sit him down and give him a cup of coffee? And if he can't calm down, get him help. Because ultimately, one reflects a gospel patience, and the other one says, I ain't got time for you, man. You smelly. You haven't bathed in days. And you are, you are running, on a, running on a level that I can't contain, because I have to contain everything. But a church is supposed to display God's glory, his beauty, his mercy, compassion, his love, his, his kindness. Jesus himself ate with sinners and tax collectors. And yet, most local churches, and I'm not charging you guys with it, most local churches won't even talk to their neighbors because they're, because they're Democrats or because, they, uh, or, 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 or because they're, they're, maybe, they, maybe they drink and smoke too much. Which, I mean, honestly, I got some of those neighbors. <laughs> I can smell the cigarette smoke. I can see the cigarette smoke from one of my neighbors in the middle of the night. You can see the smoke coming out of their windows and they've got one light outside and it just illumines all the smoke. And it's like, man, you, had, you make chain smoking look cool. Like, <laughs> so most, mo uh, not most, but a church that doesn't think to even go and care about that person, to catch them as a tire from their, from their vehicles rolling down the hill, to try and grab their dog that's running away on a leash. That actually happened not to me, although it will one day. But a but, uh, neighbor down here, their dog got out, and this poor little girl, probably couldn't be more than a fourth or fifth grader, is chasing this speedy little dog as it's running down the road. Um, and, and I went out to help her, but I am a big, hulking figure, and I scared the dog back home. So, <laughs> not saying that you should do what I did. I just, I tried to say, come here, puppy. And the, 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 dog, the dog was like, oh, no, <laughs> and just ran the other way. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm willing to be interrupted in my day. And that's what we Christians are meant to be. How many times a day God is interrupted by us? I don't just mean you individually. I mean us corporately. But God is perfectly patient and loving and kind. Are we corporately perfectly patient, loving, kind, merciful? No. No, we're not. And that's why we get the joy of repentance. We get the joy of going, God, you are perfect. And we do this together, not just in our own lives, but we do this together. We go, wow, God is so kind. And I'm a little grumpy. Uh, I'm going to rephrase that. I'm a lot of grumpy. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like Oscar the Grouch, but worse. And, and I need to repent. And I need my brothers and sisters here to help me repent of that. 
I need your strength to strengthen me. I need God's strength to strengthen me. It's in those, those, those willingnesses to be vulnerable, to be broken, to admit our own sinfulness, to desire repentance, to desire to live as God intends us to live, that we as a corporate body glorify our Lord. If a local church is doing all those things, right? All those things. Go ahead and open up Titus chapter 2, if you're willing or able. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And Titus is one of those, one of those books that's really not very long. It's a quick read, um, but there's a, there's, there's a lot in it. But verses 11 through 14... Uh, Paul gives the ground, the foundation, the core of every, every Christian's action, uh, individually and corporately. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Again, training, training us. The Christian life is a process. Uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for what? Good works. The gospel itself is our fuel for good works, for love, for compassion, for delighting in him regardless of circumstance. A church is meant to be a display of God's glory. A church is meant to be not a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. It's meant to be a home for the gospel to do its work. Glorifying our Lord. So if a church is doing all those things, if a local church is doing all the th those things, working toward them, repenting of corporate and individual sin in response to the gospel call, the good news call of a holy God, then really they're displaying God's glory in a broken, fallen, and sinful world. There's a beauty to it. Our concerns that we have on a daily basis they're meant to be rooted in the gospel. And if there's not an air of gospel truth, which honestly, I could make anything sound like there's a gospel necessity to it, but, but, but truly, if we examine our motives, our, our passions, our, our concerns, if they're not rooted in the gospel, then they're rooted in the world and they have to be left behind, forsaken, for us to concentrate on what truly matters. What truly matters? 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat, whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. What is a local church? It's a group that does all things to the glory of God. It displays God's glory. It's a wonderful thing to have a gospel vulnerability, a knowledge that, that if... If you came up to me today and you said, hey, you know what, I, um, I got some addictions. 
and I struggle with these things, and I have these problems. I'm not going to sit here and, and, and pick up my Bible and smack you in the face and say, get over it, sinner. Instead, I'm going to say, okay, let's pray, let's look at God's word, and let's have the Holy Spirit conform us. I'm not going to look on people with judgment for problems. Everybody's got problems. And when I say everybody, I mean me. I got problems. But <laughs> my assumption is that everybody else has got one too. But that is what the church is meant to do, to display the character and nature and love and mercy of God, thereby displaying his glory. So let's pray and sing our last song. Lord, I pray that I did this truth um, justice. I pray that you would work this into our hearts individually and corporately, that we are meant to display your glory, to be zealous for good works because of, what, of the good work you did in us. That we're supposed to desire to, 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 to show how wonderful you are in every aspect of our lives. And not just individually, but together, Lord. Conform us to that. May we worship you with our acts and our words and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.